Let's uh, make a transition now to our our second topic, hermeneutics, interpreting the Bible. Right, we're going to focus on figurative language and types and symbols tonight. Okay, what is figurative language? Does anybody have an idea? Say it louder. Speech that's not literal but still has a purpose and drives something that's not exactly what you're saying. Okay, speech that's not literal but still has a purpose, still communicates. Okay, a metaphor is an example. Okay, a parable, that's interesting. A parable is a kind of figurative speech. Yes. Other examples? Um, an allegory is probably not a figure, but we'll get to that. Metaphors, similes, exaggerations. We'll, we'll look at some of the types. Okay? Figurative language is the use of figures of speech in verbal communication. That was a really intelligent statement, wasn't it? Um, a figure is a use of language, and it's usually a group of words or phrases in which a way different from the wooden or, li or, or dictionary usage is employed in order to communicate in a particularly vivid and striking manner. You know, we all use figures of speech. If you, sat, if you stopped and listened to yourself, you'd be shocked how much figurative language you use. We say we're dog tired or our dog flew the coop, even though dogs can't fly and they don't live in coops. We say it's raining cats and dogs, and I stepped in a poodle. Um, <laughs> you say, that's an old one. You, you say, my phone is dead, but it never was alive, was it? <laughs> you know, we, we do this all the time. We do it so much we don't even think about it. Okay? Question, does the presence of figurative language in the Bible mean that literal interpretation won't work? It doesn't, does it? Here's why. Figures of speech are part of normal verbal or literary communication, right? We use it all the time. That's why it's called literal or literary interpretation. <coughs> Now, figures may not be literally true in the most wooden sense, but they convey literal truth. If I say, my dog flew the coop, does that convey literal truth? You know what it means, right? It means my dog ran away. He's not a bird, he can't fly, he didn't live in a coop, but it does convey literal truth, doesn't it? And there's really no confusion if you understand the figure. Okay? Figures are based on the ordinary meanings of words, so they're only one step removed from wooden literal meaning. It's not layer upon layer upon layer of uh, tricky meanings. Okay? Now, interpreting scripture with the recognition of figurative language is not the same as allegorical language. Okay? When Jesus says, I am the door, okay, he's using a figure of speech, 
and the context lets you know what that means. Now, if you're going to allegorize it, you would say, well, the doorknob represents Jesus' heart, and the windows in the door represent his mind, and the hinges represent the way he turns in doing the will of God. That's allegory. Okay? That's total baloney, isn't it? You see how it varies, how different it is from interpreting the figure in the way in which it's meant? Now, the reason you know that what I just said was utter foolishness is because you all understand figurative language. It almost doesn't have to be mentioned except to be complete. Well, how can you tell when figurative language is being used? I guess the basic rule is that you should take the language as being woodenly literal unless there's a good reason not to. And if figures are present, that's obviously a good reason not to. Okay? Use the figurative sense when the expression is an obvious figure. And a lot of times, it really is. Okay? When Jesus says, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life within you. Okay? Is that not an obvious figure? That's the Holy Mother Church. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> e- even the Holy Mother Church there's not a hand on a chopping block and a meat cleaver going like this and saying, take a piece. Okay? Well, I know, but... but you know, there have, there have been people who would look at Scripture and when Jesus said that to people, they're saying, what kind of nutty is he? Is he really going to give his body and blood to us to eat? Okay? They didn't recognize that it was a figure. Now, they probably wanted not to make sense of what he was saying because they didn't like him and they didn't like his message. Okay. Use figurative sense when the passage tells you to do so. Now, off the top of my head, I think the main place where you would do this would be in prophetic passages. For example, if you go to the book of Daniel, There are places where you are told that portions of a statue represent something else. Or four beasts come out of the ocean. And even though they're called beasts, the passage tells you that they represent kingdoms. Okay, so sometimes the passage will actually instruct you on how to sort of decode figurative language. Use the figurative sense if the literal interpretation is impossible or absurd. It is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Well, unless you believe this story that the eye of a needle was a tiny door in a wall, which I personally don't, a camel can't go through the eye of a needle, can't. So that's got to be figurative language. Now, if I've upset anybody by saying I don't think there's such a door, please forgive me. Okay? <laughs> it's debated. But there are some cases where the figure, if it were little, literal, is just too hard to accept. And you shouldn't. Again, eating Jesus' body. Okay. I, um, I want to ask a question. I don't know why I'm thinking about it, but last slide, 
Okay, the temporariness of life, right? We're only going to be here for a short time. We're, we're not physically immortal. Okay, metaphors. They involve the verb to be. I am the door. I am the vine. You are the branches. Okay, those are metaphors. Is Jesus a door? In a literal sense? No. No. But there's something about a door that Jesus is like. Okay, he's a way to get into something, right? He's the way to get into a positive, favorable relationship with God the Father. Okay? It does express something meaningful. And in the context, you can figure out what the meaning is. Okay. How about figures involving substitution, a metonymy? We don't use this. We don't, we don't talk about this one very much, but it's very common in Scripture. The cause is substituted for the effect. The tongue of the wise brings healing. That means if you're sick, get a wise friend to come and lick you. <laughs> <laughs>
it's really not about me moving from here to somewhere else and coming back. But that's what I say. Because I'm not going to tell you what I'm really going to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's a euphemism. Right? I'm not, try- I'm not trying to, to be offensive here. I'm trying to help you see what's going on with euphemisms. Okay? We say, Koreans say, when somebody dies, they say, he has gone back. And they're not talking about taking three steps like this. Okay? <laughs> they're saying returned to God or the other world or whatever. We say fall asleep. The Bible talks about those who sleep in Christ. What they really mean is the people who croak and whose bodies are rotting in the ground right now. Okay, But they don't say that. The scripture doesn't say that. You understand it, don't you? Very naturally. Okay. How about over or understatement? Yes. Was this one of the things that didn't come up in substitution? That was uh, anthropomorphism. Okay. Yeah. Does that an anthropomorphism is it's it's like a personification. For example, it would say um, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God doesn't have hands, does he? But we would describe him as having hands because it means something. It, it, it's significant to us. Um, he will shelter you under his wings. Okay, that's actually a zoo, a zoomorphism. Okay, it's saying that God has the body parts of an animal. Okay, anthropopathism is ascribing to God emotions that are human. Okay? So when we say that God weeps or we say that God is afraid, I don't know if scripture ever says that God is afraid. God is angry. Okay? Some people would call those anthropopathisms. Personally, I'm not sure that I would. I think that our emotions reflect God's emotions. I don't think it's really... I think God does experience anger. So, I'm not sure I like that category myself, but it's commonly used. Okay? There are a whole lot of those uh, categories for things that are ascribed to God that he doesn't really do. Or doesn't do in that way. Now, hyperbole is simply exaggeration. More is said than is really meant for emphasis. My eyes shed rivers of tears. All night long I make my bed swim. Does anybody have enough water in his tear ducts to float a bed? No. No. But does it communicate clearly? It does, doesn't it? Okay, sarcasm. This is ridicule expressed in the form of a compliment. In the battle of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, they can't get their God to set the sacrifice on fire, so he says, shout louder. Surely he is a God. What he really means is he doesn't even exist. (coughs) You all know what sarcasm is. Okay, oxymoron. This is a fun one. Joining two words together that are opposite or contradictory. The Internal Revenue Service. Did they ever serve anybody? Yeah. 
they don't serve us. A summons to appear. Yeah, yeah, right. They'll serve a summons. Okay. A biblical one is living sacrifices. Right. Sacrifices are what? They're normally dead. Okay. Now there is such a thing as a living sacrifice, but it's a figure of speech or jumbo shrimp. You know, how can a shrimp be jumbo or military intelligence? Some people would say. Is uh, uh, that one's not fair, really, but it's kind of fun. Okay. Or paradox. There's an inconsistency. A statement of a truth in a form that gives the impression of a contradiction. Whoever loses his life for me and the gospel will save it. How can you lose something and save it at the same time? Jesus said it that way to show that there is a sense in which you can lose your life and a sense in which you can save it by doing the same thing. He wants to contrast the two. He captures your attention by using that figure of speech. Or whoever wants to be first shall be last. How can that make any sense? How can that make sense? Is it not a logical contradiction? Does it mean that if you say, I want to be first, you'll be kicked to the back of the line? Does it? What's it mean? We have to be servants to be... Okay, we have to be servants to be leaders. We have to serve others before, and because of our serving others, we'll be moved to the front. Kind of that is the moved to the front in what sense, though? Well, in the sense of a sacrifice. It has, it's, not, it's not that if you, if, you, you know, if, you're, if you serve others, then you'll be moved to a position of leadership. But it's that if you're unselfish from the start and move to the back, then you'll be moved to the front for your unselfishness. Isn't that you, in the context of the washing of the feet? Yeah. I, I would say that to be first means to be prominent. Okay? To be viewed as important or even to be rewarded. And I think Jesus is saying if you want approval, you have to be willing to take a lowly position. If you want reward, you have to be willing to do the tasks that nobody wants to do. That's, that's the way that I would sort of unpack it. No. Um, think of Philippians chapter 2. You know, Jesus took the lowest position and by doing that and submitting to the Father's will, in the end, he's going to be exalted to the highest position. Okay? He became first by choosing to be last. He became exalted by choosing to be debased. Okay. Some rules for interpreting figures of speech. Determine whether a figure is being used. You guys are all very good at that. Okay? You just naturally know how to do it. Now, this is interesting. Some figures have an image and a non-image. The thing that you talk about that represents something else. Okay? Um, falling asleep represents what? It often represents death. Okay? Think about it and figure out what is being represented by the thing that is actually being said. 
Okay? If there's a point of comparison, there's a place in the Bible where Paul says, I am a citizen of no little city. What does he mean? I'm a citizen of a big, important city, right? Now, there's a comparison being made there. When he says no little city, he means a very big city. If you can state those two things, then you can clarify what's being expressed by the figure. Don't always assume that a figure has the same meaning everywhere that it appears. Okay? There are some people who have argued that everywhere that yeast appears in the Bible, it's a bad thing. Okay? I don't think that's true. You know, in Matthew 13, it says that the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman put in the dough and it goes through the whole dough. Well, the kingdom of heaven, whatever it is, ain't a bad thing. Now, elsewhere, Jesus will say, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. And what he's saying there is there's something that the Pharisees do that has a tendency to infect and spread. And I think he's talking about their hypocrisy. In that case, it's negative. Don't always assume that it's negative. But you know what? In both of those uses, there's something common, isn't there? And we can do that by looking at the point of comparison. What is it about yeast that's like both of those things that it's used to describe? Permeates and has a lasting effect. Okay, it permeates, it changes things. It has a lasting effect, okay? Now, if you recognize that, you can, you can see how yeast is used as a figure for both positive and negative things, and you won't get tripped up, okay? And the fifth one, use limits according to conventions of communication and logic. You know what that is? It's common sense. An awful lot of this is just common sense, but you have to apply the common sense by looking at the scripture and thinking about it. Don't just glance at the verse and say, yeah, I know what it means. You've got to look through the context. You may have to read the entire book to really know what's going on. Okay? <coughs> Any questions? All right, let's keep going. All right, what about idioms? Idioms are a lot like figures, except they tend to be fixed forms. They always appear the same way. They tend to be peculiar to a certain people and culture and time and history. Bible dictionaries and, and commentaries are helpful with these ones. How about kick the bucket? You all know what that means, right? Is there anything intrinsic in that expression that would tell you that it means to die? You can't really figure it out in the words, can you? There's something historical that happened. Now, I don't really know where it came from. But wherever it came from, we have been trained to understand the meaning of that phrase. It's an idiom. Um, hit the road. Yeah. I mean, is, is hit the road an obvious metaphor? Uh, uh, well, is it an obvious figure? You might say it means go out and get on the road, which means move, and, and that's workable. Maybe it's not really an idiom. idiom. How about a real knockout? <coughs> Guys, you know what a real knockout is, right? It's a pretty girl. What in the world does that have to do with a knockout? 
Knockout is a boxing term. Okay? The only way you know that is because you've heard people use it. These are things that you have to learn. Are these also colloquialisms? Yeah, idioms are colloquialisms. That's another word for it. Okay? They're phrases that are commonly used that don't have an obvious meaning. Now, if you trace back through time, you may figure out where the meaning came from, but th they wouldn't just come to you always, okay? <coughs> Idioms are figures of speech, but they're fixed figures of speech, or under the pile. We all know what that means, right? No? It means I've got too much work, okay? But, see, that's an idiom. Some of you know it, and some of you don't. All right? Uh, can't spell people. Um, these are learned conventions that are. What's that? I don't know what that next one is. Which one? The last one. After under the pile. That's the last one. Yeah. There's no more. Oh no. I can't spell people. Sorry. Idioms are learned conventions. Okay. They're not. They're not that hard. Here's some biblical idioms though, and you. You'll find this interesting. In John 2, 4, when Jesus is in Cana and Mary comes to him and says, there's a problem with the wine, and he literally says, woman, what to you and me? Okay? And we read that and we think he's being rude to his mom. Does that ever bother you? Seems like he's being rude. It's an idiom. And it basically means... Why involve me? He's not being rude. He's just using an idiom. Okay, when Jesus says, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, I'm going to be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. And we go through the chronology and we say, well, Jesus died on Friday just before sunset and he was resurrected sometime before sunrise on Sunday. That's about a day and a half. The Bible's got an error in it. I don't believe in inerrancy. I'm going home. And apostatizing. Okay. People have done things like that. Okay. It's because they don't understand that there is a biblical idiom. Okay, three days and three nights in the way that people communicated in those days <coughs> meant any portion of three consecutive twenty four hour periods. And it works. Okay. Um, Romans 16.4 is usually translated they risked their lives for the gospel. But in Greek it actually says they laid down their necks. Okay. Now you can guess where that idiom comes from, can't you? You, know, you picture a chicken on the chopping block waiting or, or a person waiting to be executed or something. Ephesians 5.6 talks about the sons of disobedience. Is disobedience a father or a mother? It really isn't, right? It can't have children. But this is, this is the New Testament borrowing an Old Testament way of speaking. Sons of disobedience means people characterized by disobedience. The Hebrews really use that expression son of very often to say like this 
And the idea is that a son is like a father, so if a father is disobedient, the son is going to be disobedient. But they don't say sons of a disobedient father. They say sons of disobedience. Okay? Those are idioms. Again, they're not that hard, are they? Okay, practice time. Let's look at some figures. Turn to Psalm 1 and scan through there and tell me when you see a figure of speech. <laughs> what? The whole song. Well, okay. Be specific. Be specific. Okay, where in the first verse? Walk in the counsel of the wicked. Okay, walk in the counsel of the wicked. That's probably a figure of speech. Next line. What's that? Stand the path of sinners, okay. Is, is, is there anything wrong with standing in the road where a sinner is going to walk? That's standing in the path of sinners, right? Then why does he say you're blessed if you don't stand there? Because you're going to get run over? <laughs> okay, it's a euphemism. And he, to stand in the path of sinners is really to follow the path of sinners. And you know what? Path is a euphemism too, isn't it? Path is a euphemism for do the same things as they do. Okay, good. New Testament uses a very similar metaphor, doesn't it? Paul says, walk in love. Okay? He's not talking about having little hearts coming out of your head and stepping across the floor. Okay? He's saying, live a lifestyle that is characterized by that kind of action. Okay, give me some more figures here. Okay, sit in the seat of scoffers. Is there, you know, I go to the movie theater and in the previous show there was some clown down there throwing popcorn and making cat calls at the movie. So I can't sit there, right? I probably don't want to. Yeah. Somebody may try to get revenge on me. What does it mean? It's the same as the other one, right? If you sit where the other guys sat, that's a euphemism for acting the way the other guy acted. Okay. How about verse 3? He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. His toes will grow very long, reach down into the dirt, suck up nutrients, and fruit will appear on his ears. Is that what it means? No. Do you know what it means? What does it mean? Go where you're going to be fed spiritually. Okay. It also means you can't be tossed about. He's stable. Okay, he's stable. Sure could, Good. And when the best place for a tree to be planted is not in the middle of a field, it's next to a stream. Because when the water table goes down and drought comes, there's still water near the stream, right? So he's saying you're going to be stable, you're going to be well provided for, you're not going to, you know, quickly die or, you know, get into distress when things get tough. How about verse 4? Okay. 
Okay, that's a simile, right? Because you have they are like. What is the chaff that the wind blows away? Okay, so the ungodly are thin, light, and easily carried by the wind. Okay. Now, now what you've done is you've gotten the point of comparison. Chaff is generally considered to be worthless. Okay? Unless you're making modern whole wheat bread and you want the fiber in there. Um, what's that? You don't? Okay, okay, well, you know more about cooking than I do. Okay, maybe that maybe that's not in the fiber. Maybe in your bricks. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay, good. But it's also a comparison with the verse before. Yes. Okay, good. Right, and in the former verse, we've got fruit, and in this one, we've got something useless that nobody wants, trash. Okay, um, how about Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verses 1 to 19? paper and 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 get forgiveness for your sins with it? 
It's a whole lot easier than putting your trust in Christ. You just go to the office supply store. Well, okay, but, but what's the figure? Blot out my transgressions is a figure. Okay, and what's it picturing transgressions as being like? Stains, probably the stain of blood. Okay. All right, what else do you see? Um, how about verse 2? Wash away my sins. Can you wash away sins? Not literally, right? It's a figure, isn't it? Again, it's picturing you as being stained or covered with blood. Um, let's see. How about verse 7? Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Are there figures there? What do you see? What's a figure? Okay, purge me with hyssop. I'm not sure exactly how that works. It sounds like a beating. I'm serious. It sounds like a beating. Um, how about whiter than snow? You know, when I'm when I'm forgiven, am I going to become an albino? <laughs> Those are figures, aren't they? Okay. Well, they had an intrinsic concept of sin being stained. Okay, that's right, and that's the point of comparison. Okay, sin sin is pictured as a stain on the soul. Well, they would. They, hyssop was was a reed, and they would dip blood in it, and then they would sprinkle it and do things like that. I'm not sure if that's the picture here, or, or if it's, or if it's actually a caning. Yeah, I, I just don't know. They beat the dirt out of it. Could be. That might be it. Okay. How about um, Psalm six six? What's that? I don't remember that one. Ah. Okay. We looked at that one. I drenched my bed in tears. How about Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17? Yeah. Is that a figure of speech? That's actually a whole bunch of figures of speech, isn't it? And arguably, it's an allegory. Because it's picturing you clothed with armor from head to foot and all the different parts of that armor uh, have, have spiritual significance. Now, if you were going to say righteousness, he says put on the belt of righteousness, right? That, that is the belt of truth, the helmet of righteousness. Okay, let's talk about the helmet of righteousness. Okay? Well, helmets have a strap and they have a visor, and if it's a German helmet, it's got a spike on top. You know, what does the spike represent? What does the flip-down visor represent? What does the strap represent? You're looking at me funny, and I'm glad you are. <laughs> they don't represent anything, do they? Well, the, the point is, the figure of speech goes only so far. Okay, 
to go into details that are not expressed in the text is to add something that isn't there. That would be allegorizing the figure. Okay? You see what I'm saying? Okay. There are lots more. Um, it's 8.30. I guess we're not going to get to this last passage. Do you have any questions about the things we've covered tonight before we call it quits? Okay, next week I will try very hard to have for you this last set of notes that I was supposed to have tonight. Um, do I have any homework for you? Let me see. Yes, yes they do. I'm going to try, yeah. Yeah. We're not doing too badly. Last, It seems like every week I have two or three slides we don't get through, but then I just bring them up next time. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word is so rich. Thank you that you chose to communicate in ways that are not only clear, but that are beautiful, in ways that not only reach our intellects, but reach our hearts as well. Please help us to appreciate those ways more deeply and to understand them more fully. Please, Father, this week as we spend time in your word, give us the joy of discovering things that we haven't seen before as your spirit guides us and as we put to use the things that we have been seeing. Please dismiss us with your blessing and protect us as we go home. We thank you in your son's name.